Thank you so much for listening to the Talking Classical podcast. I really hope that you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget that you can subscribe to the Talking Classical podcast and you'll receive a notification every time a new episode is released. You can also follow the Talking Classical podcast on Twitter, on the Talking Classical blog and on Facebook and YouTube. Many thanks for listening once again. I hope that you'll be able to join me for the next episode very soon. Hi everyone and welcome back to another episode of the Talking Classical Podcast. My name is Annabelle Lee and I'm your host. Welcome if you're listening for the first time and welcome if you have listened to this podcast before. It's great to have you again. So in this podcast I'm going to be sharing an interview that I recorded last week during a brief visit to London. I got to go to the iconic Ronnie Scott's Jazz Club in London, where I met the artistic director, James Pearson. James is both a jazz and classical pianist, as well as overseeing the artistic output and programming of Ronnie Scott's. So we talked about similarities and the differences between jazz and classical piano, as well as how both styles inform each other. We also talked about James's fantastic concert celebrating the legacy of legendary entertainer and musician Dudley Moore, who was of course a musician who was able to cross boundaries between both jazz and classical music. We talked about improvisation the history and the legacy of Ronnie Scott's Jazz Club and listen out at the end for a little walking tour of the venue which I have to say I'm never going to forget that experience standing on the stage at Ronnie Scott's knowing that so many incredible musicians played on that stage. Thank you so much to James for taking the time out of his really busy schedule to talk to me. He had a gig to go and do in Aylesbury after the recording, so I'm very grateful to him for taking the time to talk to me. So I hope that you enjoy listening to the discussion. And don't forget that there's a whole range of conversations that I've recorded with artists and industry practitioners over the past few years or so. So have a little listen to those if you would like. Don't forget to subscribe if you would like to be kept informed of any future episodes. I've got some really exciting guests coming up over the next year. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy this discussion with James Pearson. Thank you for listening once again. Stay safe, everybody, wherever you are, and bye for now. Tell me a bit more about yourself, and how did you start on the piano? So, my name's James Pearson. At the moment, we're sitting in Ronnie Scott's Jazz Club in the heart of London, where I'm the artistic director. I've been here for 15 years as the house piano player and artistic director, which means I get involved in all the band bookings and the sort of creative shape that the club outputs throughout the world. But before that, so I started playing the piano, which is my main thing, when I was about three, as soon as I could open the lid on the thing at home. I used to bash away at it and then had lessons from about five onwards. So I've been playing for over 45 years now. Did my first concert when I was seven, got a review in the local paper. 
for my small piece I played and then just went through always studied classical music never studied jazz yeah. but had jazz music and other sorts of genres alongside but I always had a sort of quite a formal training did the grades and went to Guildhall did four years there and then after that I did, this was all again studying classical music and orchestration after that I just sort of worked in various jobs as in musical jobs playing either jazz groups or cocktail piano or orchestrating stuff or a lot of classical piano for some of my friends from the Guildhall days so which has still carried on to this day I often go to Amsterdam um, and play with a guy called Dominic Seldes who was at college with Tom Kemp and yeah. all that lot yeah. I literally do all sorts of music yeah and how did you come to jazz did the Guildhall have a jazz department at the time? Or? They did, but I had come to jazz a lot earlier. Yeah. And I came to it, I think because my father used to play some jazz records when I was very little, and they obviously made him quite sort of, you know, in a buoyant mood, which yeah. obviously appealed to me. And also my grandmother, my grandparents used to sing a lot of Fat Swallow songs, and they bought me a record when I was nine of Fat Swallow. And his songs were quite funny for a nine-year-old like things like your feet's too big yeah, yeah. <laughs> they had funny titles which actually appealed to me and I wasn't really aware what a brilliant piano player he was the sounds like this guy was having a lot of fun doing what he did yeah. and that definitely what appealed to me about the sort of jazz side of things and so I used to learn how to play that music by ear and worked it out I mean Fats Waller had a big stretch he had hands yes. like Ratmaninoff <laughs> Um, so I couldn't quite do that, but you know. Yeah. But I've got little tape cassette recordings of me trying to play his stuff when I was about 11 or 12. Yeah. And I think that musical routine, because it was early jazz as, as, as such, you know, 1920s, 30s stuff, it really led me to have a sort of good level of harmonic knowledge about how the way the next level of, you know, the bebop stuff. Yeah. I also played the double bass as well in a band in Cambridge where we grew up. That's where I learned about the roots of the chords and the harmonies and... It was all done subconsciously yeah. through on the gigs. With jazz, it's always been really learnt on the bandstand. Yeah. You can study it, you know, as far as what scales and certain things that will work over certain chords, but practice comes when you're putting them in application yeah. um, on the stage as such. And so I soon learnt, by, usually by mistakes, if I played some bad chords behind a trumpet player, they would let you know, mm -hmm. sometimes physically, you know, it's like <laughs> you get a bit of a clobber on the head or something like that. And so jazz has always been running in tandem with the classical. Um, and I find it so useful because I do a lot of jazz composition and I'm able to bring in harmonies that many jazz musicians wouldn't possibly use because I yeah. listen to so much classical music, especially Messiaen and Debussy and Ravel and all that sort of stuff and uh, some of the English composers, people like Herbert Howells. Yeah. Um, I love all that harmony and Vaughan Williams, the parallels, Frederick yeah. Delius, you know, all those lovely ninth and 13th chords. Yeah. And if you go back to 1930, what Delius was writing was pretty much the same as some of the, the jazz arrangers and composers at the time. Yeah, I was actually gonna ask you, did you find that your classical training helped you when you came to jazz or were there some aspects of classical training that you had to let go of? Go so the off? classical training definitely helped. It also was a bit restrictive as well because I became quite aware of technique. Getting a good quality sound, it really helps. Absolutely. Let's look at that first. And, yeah. you know, really knowing how to get from out of a piano or whatever instrument you play, the new, you know, the full range. Unfortunately, not so much now, but a lot of jazz musicians quite limited in the actual sound they can produce. They, it's all about the notes. They 
you know, the, they think about the right notes to play, but they don't necessarily think about the attack or the way to play. I mean, obviously, mm -hmm. it's natural. Can sometimes be a bit of display of technique, do you think? Absolutely. Yeah. It has a disadvantage having a great, having a, had a lot of classical, if you've got a good technique, because sometimes you can end up playing things you know will work and they'll show off and they will do really well, but they're not necessarily musically right yeah. or they haven't got much depth for mm -hmm. thought. Obviously, the older you get, the more you're aware of that. But when you're young, sort of 18, 19, 20, and you've learnt a few incredible technical passages, yeah. you will apply them to nearly every time you get the chance exactly. to play that little run. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and after a while, it does wear off, uh, let's put it that way, because you realise music is, has, if, in order to survive, has to have a deeper level. When I was at the Guild Hall and I was studying Beethoven, I used to, some of his sets of variations, I used to do my own variation after, you know, Variation one, yeah. and then it's sort of jazz version, but still of that variation. Yeah. And some of the more eclectic things I've done, for example, at music at Morlin, or I did it in St Martin's in the fields, is I've done the Bach inventions, and then I've done an improvisation cool. after each one. So yeah. the whole thing is like a, and it's a run, it's a continuous piece of music. And I think a lot, you know, a lot of pianists have done this, but it's. And it's not necessarily jazz music I'm playing, but it's certainly not, I'm not improvising in the style of Bach, it's just very much instant composition, but linking them up. Mm -hmm. Because if I suddenly turned it all into a sort of blues, it would sound wrong. You okay, know? okay. Do you know what I mean? So it's yeah. about musical awareness, I think. Yeah, yeah. And obviously the classical, you've got so much history of music that you can go on anything, you know. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> Do you find that your um, training in composition as well as arrangement, does that feed into your jazz playing as well? Absolutely, in the sense that I like to think about when I'm playing solo, for example, very much as a, as a composition in the sense that I'll try and play something that is cohesible to me, the rest of the band, but also to an audience and show them how I develop that idea. That is basically the concept I do it. And sometimes that works better than others. And it's usually that you start with a simple phrase, develop it within, you know, so that people can see where you're going. At some point, the theory is that they then are just trusting what you're doing with it. Do you yeah. see what I mean? Yeah. So it's not like I'm consciously saying, right, I'm going to do five notes here, and then I'm going to do eight notes there. Yeah. It's very much done au naturel. Mm -hmm. And that's the melodic element of it. The arrangement side of it, I like to think of the harmony like that, especially with you know, the left hand. I often think, think in colours, like this would be the saxophone section, how it would be punctuating the harmonies or you know if you're playing block chords on the piano it's very much like you're playing for writing for a saxophone section mm -hmm. so to get that sort of and I definitely think of it as in colours mm -hmm. and that also is something that Beethoven used to do as well you know it's sort of yeah. you know he'd have three or four different elements going on yeah <laughs> do you have synesthesia or do you think in synesthetically I, yeah I I don't definitely don't have synesthesia yeah but I can, I, I can, in a sense, I can teach myself to give a, a certain text. You know, I, I think I definitely feel, have a feeling about keys and harmonies. Yeah. It's certainly not like a purple light or anything. No, or no, stars no. flying yeah, around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm interested in that. And, you know, also I'm very interested in harmonics, the physics of music, how it works. It's a very complex thing and I don't really understand it too much. But, but it does amaze me the way sound works and you know how the dog whistle they can hear it we can't yeah. you know the entity of sound and yeah. also you know just the way harmonics exist and 
it fascinates because a lot of harmony has come out of physics in the early days, yeah. you know, ratios and all that. And what fascinates me is there's so many mistakes in music, you know, the way you have to tune a piano. You have to create an illusion that it's in tune because it's after you've done the first three or four octaves from around middle C, yeah. you have to tune it slightly out of tune to make it sound in tune at exactly. the higher and the lower edge registers. Exactly. Because if you were to tune it physically completely correct, it would sound wrong. And that, that amazes me. Yeah. You know, and it's in the sense that whether the senses have been numbed down or we've just got so used to um, hearing it in a certain way. Mm. I'm quite interested in all that. I mean, I certainly wouldn't want to go and play on a, per you, know, um, on, you know, I like it when the piano's in tune and things yeah, like that. Yeah. I have got a perfect pitch, which is really helpful for, okay. for transcribing things. Okay. It's not as perfect that it will cease me, it will stop me from getting irritated if it's not in tune, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's a bit more like relative perfect pitch, you know. I wanted to talk about your um, programme that you did here last year, the Dudley Moore programme. I absolutely loved that. It was so fantastic. And, of course, he was, was able to cross the boundaries between both classical and jazz and just such an incredible entertainer. Tell me a bit more about that programme and why you chose to celebrate his legacy. Well, I've always been a big fan of Dudley Moore, not only as a you know, comedy actor, but also yeah. as his piano player. And it was wonderful. Obviously, I, when I was little, I first saw Arthur and I became aware of it. And there's a scene in Arthur when he plays the piano and I, th I, mean, I thought, wow, he's really playing it. And then a few years later, someone played me the recording of him doing the Beethoven and the same to you, <laughs> a friend of mine called Justin Redmond, who is a boat designer. And uh, I was about, uh, must have been about 12 or 13, and he said, oh, you will love this. And it's when Dudley Moore plays Colonel Bogey in the style of Beethoven, <laughs> which was from Beyond the Fringe. So it was through that and his pastiches that I got into the comedy side of it. And then he did one of Benjamin Britten called Little Miss Britain, Little Miss Muffet, yeah. <laughs> Little Miss Britain. Then he did the Schubert one yeah, and the 4A on one. They're brilliant. <laughs> and they're absolutely brilliant. And musically, they're absolutely blinding as well, the, especially the Benjamin Britten one. I mean, yeah. it sounds exactly like it could be Britain. <laughs> I know. The, the Schubert song, when he does two parts, almost something, because Dudley Moore had this incredible voice where he could sing really high and low and he could absolutely. split the break. And that impression of Peter Sears is like spot on. Isn't it just? <laughs> I love it. My old music teacher's father had some old 60s records of Dudley Moore um, with his trio. And so I ended up listening to his jazz trio and then just always listened to it. It was really good. Then when I was at Guildhall, my jazz, I, had, I did jazz second study. I was allowed yeah. to do that in the second year. Um, and the chap who taught me was a guy called Lionel Grigson, who was at Oxford University when Dudley Moore was there. And he told me some very funny stories about Dudley Moore. Um, and he also said he was the best impersonator of Errol Garner, because Dudley Moore was really influenced by Errol Garner. And in fact, here at Ronnie Scott's, the only time Errol Garner came in was when he came in with Dudley Moore, when Dudley Moore was playing at the establishment, which was literally on the parallel streets of where we are now. Yeah. So, and he was, and Errol Garner played in such a joyous way, and Dudley was very much into that, and the Oscar Peterson, very sort of, just fun, lovely way of playing the piano. But then there was a sort of English poise to his harmony, which I've always sort of, there was a lingering quality. It's slightly unrestful. Some of his, his chords, like the minor, major, major seventh minor chords, things like Fielddale for Shirley, and some of his weird compositions, Amalgram or something, Amalgogram. And they're all of these weird ninth chords. Was he an organ scholar? Yeah, he was at, at Maudlin. Yeah, that would probably feed, I imagine all of that. In those days, um, 
uh, most of the universities, but especially Oxbridge, was generally for the public school lot. Yes. <laughs> and uh, so, and he was from Dagenham in North East London. Wow. And he was very little, only five foot two, and he had a club foot, so one leg was a bit shorter than the other. So mm. he developed this sort of comedy role as this almost, I suppose, as a survival technique. Exactly. He went to the Guildhall on the Saturday Junior School, got a scholarship for that, and uh, then he went to Oxford. To, organ scholarship and studying composition with Bernard Rose, who was the sort of the don at the time, probably his final year he, or the year after. He was playing with his jazz chair and John Dankworth and Cleo Lane were playing in Oxford and they were big jazz superstars and they heard him play his El Garner. And then he got a job with John Dankworth and Cleo Lane. At the same time, beyond the fringe. So it all happened really much, you know, at the, at the same time. And then he, was, he had to say to John Dankworth, I've got this small play review that I've been asked to do called Beyond the Fringe, which is happening in Edinburgh. And that was basically the last time John Dankworth ever worked with Dudley in that capacity, because it obviously went to superstardom, well, through the British theatre, went to New York. And he was very much the musical comedy and comedian within that group, because it was very academic. You had Peter Cook, Jonathan Miller and Alan Bennett. Yeah. It was also a time in this country where satire was much more risque than it is now. Because satire oh, doesn't, it doesn't exist anymore in that sense. because no. we've got so much, very PC, isn't it? Yeah, and we've got access to so much yeah. information. But in those days, it was, oh, you don't, get, you don't take the mickey out of the Prime Minister. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, and I think also people understood when Dudley Moore did his pastiches, they were aware a bit more of Peter Pierce and Schubert songs and... His jazz piano, and then his compositions, then he does the theme to um, Quote Unquote, which is a still running on Radio 4. Yeah. And, and then I met various people who worked with him, and etc. So I've always had a long passion. So I really wanted to, in a sense, preserve his compositions. That's why we did this concert um, here. It was like, let's look at because remind the world what a great musician he was. Because yeah. I think that was the one thing that has always been consistent throughout his life, even when he got very ill at the end of his life. Mm. And I met the lady a few years ago that nursed him for the last three years, mm -hmm. Rena Fruchter, who's a pianist, Rena Fruchter. And she and her husband live in New Jersey, and they've got Dudley's pianos now. She invited me over to go and play them. Oh. Um, she's very nice. Tell me a bit more about the, the programme and the particular pieces that you, you chose. There was some quite fun scat singing that you did. Yeah. The piece when I was doing the fun scat singing was a piece called Song for Susie. Yeah. And it... It's basically, it was my impression of him doing his, his thing, because as I say, Dudley could sing very high, a lot higher than I can. Yeah. And he could also do it in his chest voice, which is yeah. quite incredible. And the, his style of singing, when he did the other side of Dudley Dale, was a tune called Strictly for the Birds, okay. when he did a sort of duet with himself, singing a third higher right. from the notes he was playing. Yeah. And then he would play a chord with the third and then sing a, a fifth higher, so it would sound like it, almost like a, a band. Yeah, yeah. And because he could sing so high, it had a very piercing quality. Um, and so he did a few years before that, he'd done this thing called Strictly for the Birds, when he does sort of bird noises and chicken noises, and it's very silly, as well as a really good piece of jazz. Song for Susie is just a nice, fun groove, and he does that same thing, and I just basically, because I can't, I wouldn't want to sing anything serious in this day and age, but it, when it comes to doing that sort of thing, I don't mind. And I've done the Little Miss Muffet as well. Have you? Yeah, and before, which... You know, I transcribed. Yeah. It's, yeah. Very, it's quite fun. And how did people respond when you... The people who knew it... Yeah, of course. ...loved it. Yeah. The other people just thought I was bizarre. 
because yeah. it's it's not the sort of thing you one likes to do is do an impression of someone that's doing an impression exactly you I mean? because you can end up doing the impression so, of uh, the impression isn't exactly it? Yeah. so the only people that really got it were the people that knew the original of course but yeah. it's still fun to do and i'm I sometimes teach at Albury Youth Music and at the oh, Br yeah. Britain Peers yeah. Foundation, yeah. and uh, I've sometimes played in these things, you know. And of they're, course, they're, they're going to get it. Aren't they, they are, yeah. but some of them are very serious. They actually don't realise it's a, you know, it's one of them's like, oh, I'm not sure about that. Is it gamifications or something like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. It was just a celebration of the things he used to like to play, like a couple of the Gershwin tunes. There was a bossa nova we did. Things like the Poova Nova, Song for Susie, which was written for Susie Kendall, his then-girlfriend, who was really beautiful. Yeah. Then he did uh, Field Day for Shirley. He always used to write pieces for his girlfriends. At okay. <laughs> when you play the piano, because the sound dies away straight away, unlike a flute or yeah. a violin, yeah. in a sense it gives the illusion of sustaining the sound. So yeah. when you're doing a, mel a melody and you sing exactly in unison on a piano, in a sort of without much of a syllable, so the piano does the attack and you sort of, it's almost like you create the illusion that the sound's going on longer than it is. And yeah. I think that he'd probably quite like that. Yeah. Is that the Albra young musicians that you've taught at? Is that jazz course or is that a classical course? It's, a, it's, the, it's the weekend course they do it throughout the, uh, once a month throughout the year. It's classical oh. and improvisation. And, you know, there's a whole load of people that teach there. And yeah. I do the piano. I've got eight well, up to eight, and they're all really amazing yeah. um, piano students. Very open-minded. I've really noticed how music's changed now from when I was in education, which was mm. like 30 years ago. A lot of people who studied classical music had a real problem with suddenly making something up or suddenly doing something in D minor. Yeah. Just make, and now they, now it they can seems, just do it, can't yeah, they? It amazes me. I know. <laughs> so now it's in, in, in quite cool because you can then look at much more quickly into the sort of phrasing and what it means about to actually solo that has, that's cohesive. Whereas before it was just getting notes that sound right. Exactly. How do you find that the, um, the classical musicians, how do they respond to, what, to improvisation when, say, you're teaching them and you ask them to improvise? We're just saying that, you know, some of them can do it really well, can't they? Um, do some people still feel a bit scared or do you think that's...? I think so. Um, I think a lot of people are more scared, but I think because they're 16, 17-year-olds, they don't they're let on. They're fearless, aren't they? I've noticed that some of the, not necessarily the pianists, but some of the saxophone players, ironically, which is the most jazziest of all the instruments, yeah. because they've studied it from a, completely from a classical, yeah. or maybe they've come through it through the recorder or the yeah, clarinet or something, yeah, exactly. whatever. Some of them are a bit more less confident. Also, I think that Playing a saxophone or a trumpet is such a loud instrument that yeah. you become a bit more conscious that you might be making wrong notes. Definitely. But, but I've certainly noticed the pianists seem to be quite open-minded to going for it. And a young guy, he was doing some really cool stuff that I thought, oh, that's a great idea. I mean, I didn't even set, suggest anything. I just said, yeah. some, find some textures. I think more people are, are open-minded to it now. Yeah. And also, they're of that right age. I think, as you just said, the younger... You know, they've got that energy, they've got that excitement, yeah. they've got that keenness. At the Guildhall, it was people that wanted to do the jazz that were on the classical, so they found it very difficult. Okay. Um, but I think that's probably changed now because it's part of the course you have to do yeah. improvisation. Oh, okay, right. David Dolan, who's I think from Israel, and he used to come in and he used to do classical improvisation. Oh, yes, yes. 
and he was quite cool because it was it was in a sense a way of enhancing taking a performance that was okay it's really good it's about 85 percent perfect <laughs> musically not that there's such a thing as perfect music but what he would do is he would use a sort of jazz technique of stripping it to the harmonies and the, the roots and he would strip it so they'd just be playing the roots of the, the harmonies and then making up their own tune and he would gradually make sure that they did exactly the right harmonic structure and eventually said, now let's go back to what Beethoven wrote or what Mozart wrote. And no, most of the time, people got a bit more into why Beethoven had written it like that. Yeah. I think that was his theory. It was a freedom. It was a jazz technique, but done within the parameters of classical music because I didn't think they thought it was jazz. They thought it was classical, that they sort of did, they reacted to it in a better way. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Because yeah. jazz has that sort of uh, yeah. fear factor to it. Yeah. Do you find that you have to alternate your technique and your playing style when you're going from classical to jazz, or can you use the same technique or the same playing style across? Oh, no, I definitely genres? have to. I definitely think about that, whether I do. Last year I did a series of, I think it was 20 concerts in a row in Holland, all classical. Ah. And it was also, it was another thing, because I got to play on exquisite pianos all the time. Yeah. And uh, that also makes a difference. Absolutely. <laughs> And it really got me back into thinking about sound quality and balance and all that sort of stuff. And just the colours that you can get out of a great instrument. Unfortunately, most of the time, jazz musicians don't get to play on brilliant pianos. Ah, OK. And also, it's, it's mic'd up. Yeah. So they're hearing the sound from a monitor on the floor yeah. because they, has to, they want to hear what the drums are doing. So the, the actual way you hear the piano is completely different. Yeah. And you find your own textures and colours, but physically it's different playing jazz piano. I've always noticed when I go back to playing jazz after I've done a sort of bout of classical things, I play it better. More, yeah. I play it more musically. Yeah. And I find if I'm playing too much jazz all the time, it gets a bit stale, to be really honest. Okay. Because I can, I can play it, and I know what to play that makes it sound fine, but not necessarily, you know, I could, that extra level of inspiration yeah. sometimes can be lacking purely because you've been playing all the time i mean when i first started working here we were playing every night for we had three hours of bands then another band would come on and then we'd do another two hours mm -hmm. so it was five hours a night for every night apart from sundays for at least six seven years <laughs> so yeah. it was good practice yeah. but it's very easy to get a bit you know musically stale because you're in a sense you're not having a break to listen to other people yeah what is it like to be the artistic director here? I mean, I got to walk down into the main auditorium and, I mean, I couldn't quite believe knowing that people like Ella Fitzgerald and Chet Baker and Buddy Rich and all these incredible musicians have played here. And, you know, when you're here in the bar, you know, you can smell the whiskey almost and you can just see the cigarettes almost. And, yeah. It's funny, isn't it? It does. Even if you're downstairs, it's still, even though obviously people don't smoke in it. it has no, no, atmosphere. but you can feel it, can't you? The dim lights. I've known this place for such a long time because I remember it was before the refurbishment. And uh, when we were music students, we used to be able to get in for £3 or £1.50 on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursdays. And Ronnie himself was really great with musicians. If he knew a musician, They'd, they'd, they'd always give you a hard time on the door, but they'd always let you in. <laughs> you know, it was of like, course, yeah. It was that classic sort yeah, of, you know, yeah, London yeah. thing that they do. Sometimes when I'm playing on the stage downstairs, I just sort of, you just remember who's played there. Yeah. 
some of the things that have happened. Oscar Peterson, you know, Bill Evans did some of his greatest gigs ever, Ronnie Scott's, most of them. In fact, they were all recorded. Yeah. Um, one just came out the other day, him in 1969. I always feel there's a certain legacy. I mean, jazz has changed so much, especially oh, in the last immensely. 30 years. Yeah. And the great jazz musicians aren't, it's a new generation now. Very few of the originals are still alive as of 2012, as in, the famous Benny Golson's still alive. He's 90, 91, I think, 92. Yeah. He wrote Whisper Not, and uh, I remember Clifford. And he was really good friends with John Coltrane. When he played down here once, I was playing the piano, and, but you learn just as much in the dressing room back. <laughs> when, he, yeah. when he's just, you know, giving him a glass of wine and he's telling his stories, I remember. What stays in the dressing room stays in the dressing room. Yeah, it's in the, absolutely. I always like to, you know, make sure that musically we have what, not only what's going on in the club, because there's a whole team of people that help book yeah. the club now, because there's so many, it's really important, because there's so much diversity in, in, the mu in, the, in the music scene internationally, but especially in the UK music scene, which for the last two years we've been very much putting on because of the pandemic. So we've had to celebrate, in a sense, the fact that there were very few UK musicians that would be able to sell out Ronnie's. There's so many musicians that wouldn't have even had a chance to play that have and are now selling it out. So it's a really wonderful thing, um, which I'm pleased about, and as is everybody. And when we go on the tour tomorrow, I've got a concert with the Ronnie Scott's House Band, oh. um, and it's a show in which we tell the history of the club. It has screens, I show a few films and things like that. And so many people have been to Ronnie Scott's and they want to tell you about their time at Ronnie Scott's, and that's just, it's just as important. Um, and every now and again, someone brings a little gift, and it could be a whistle. There was someone person that brought the whistle that Roland Kirk gave to the audience on the night of the police raid, and all these oh, stories that we've God. heard about. Yeah. People bring tickets. So this is a ticket to the, this is my membership for the club in 1960, and it's fascinating, and it means a lot to so many people, Ronnie Scott. So I'm aware of that. Let's put it that way. Yeah. But as a musician, I just love it because things do happen here. Now the late shows are happening as well. Um, you never know who might turn up. I mean, there's been times when we've had uh, Joss Stone in the audience, Jeff Beck, um, Stevie Wonder, who then got up and jammed with the band. I wasn't here for that, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Clark Peters, um, lots of pop musicians that come in yeah. have got up on stage. And Tony Bennett, who came to the concert once, and then he came and sang a song. Um, he was also booked to play, so we sort of guessed that he would. But, you know, it's always quite fun when things like that happen. Um, yeah. Lady Gaga. I got a call from her trumpet player because she was doing the Albert Hall with Tony Bennett. And yes. her trumpet player, a guy called Brian, who's a very old friend of hers, called me and he said, she's not doing anything tonight. She wants to come and play Ronnie's. We already had a band on. And I said, well, look, I didn't believe it would happen. I'm very, you know, I said, fine, just tell her to come down. If she's going to come, ring up, gave him the number of the door girl. Assumed it wasn't going to happen. The next thing I know, I got a phone call. Lady Gaga's just pulled up with a Rolls Royce, in a gold yeah. Rolls Royce. And, and they just joined in with the band that was on stage. And you know, she did a half an hour show. You know, but things like that is quite fun. And it, it's an opportunity for the stage downstairs is an opportunity for that to happen. I mean, you just mentioned a very eclectic range of artists there. I mean, do you enjoy working with musicians across different genres? Absolutely. It's, for me, that's what music's all about, because yeah. there's always something that someone else can bring to the table. You never, you know, you've got to be humble, really, if, if you're a jazz musician, because uh, 
there's always something new to learn. You know, and also just watching the different way people perform. When I was doing a big concert with Cleo Lane, and this was maybe this was before I worked here anyway, and she was brilliant in a work in things like the Bridgewater Hall and these big things because she would she would physically turn her whole body to a different section of the room almost every other phrase. Therefore, the whole room felt engaged. I've never talked to her about that, but I realised that's the way that every single person felt in that room, that she was singing to them so exclusively. And then another lady who's a very famous New York cabaret singer, she, in the, in the rehearsal, she didn't even rehearse, she just walked around the room and looked at various angles and was like, and I said to her, what are you doing? She goes, I'm just, I'm just working out my sidelines, <laughs> like that. And she would say, I'm going to work because I like to look at where I can point my eyes so that it looks like the maximum part of the room. So, you know, and I, you know, I learned something about that from, that from that lady. And then Chick Corea, the way he had his piano set up for me was just oh. incredible. It was absolutely a pain for the tuner because he was so precise about what he wanted. You know, want the notes to be struck from the certain distance. Then when I watched him play, I understood why. Because yeah. it had to, the piano had to be perfect for him. And if it wasn't, then... He would not only physically suffer, but he would mentally, it would wind him up. And as a jazz musician, you have to be completely sort of blank canvas mind. Mm. So, and that also taught me about this deeper level that, you know, you can do. And if you're playing all the time, sometimes you, one can tend to forget about that because it's almost like survival. Whereas if you're on the chick career level, then you, you can sense you can and say, right, no, let's just take our time here. Let's get it right. Yeah. And it was interesting. What are your memories of working with him? Because, I mean, he very sadly died last year. I mean, what an incredible legacy he left for not only jazz, but I think across so many different genres as well. I mean... Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he was a real person that could, you know, the music was everything, you know, and it was... He played Mozart piano concerto with Bobby McFerrin yes, conducting. Yes, yes, that's right, yes. And someone played that to me once. I didn't believe it. it <laughs> but then, of course, you know, uh, the great jazz musicians, well, all great musicians, but that generation of musicians, they learned how to play their instruments through classical music, really. Yes, yes. And that is something that doesn't necessarily happen nowadays, but the true... Even Herbie Hancock, he was playing Mozart piano concertos when he was 13. You know, Chick Corea, obviously. They, ha they had a piano teacher that taught them the scales, the yeah. basics, and they learned the classics yeah, yeah. and I think that fundamental technique that they all had really helped them to develop their own unique sound Oscar Peterson you know Bill Evans played um, Beethoven's third piano concerto for his final recital you know it's <laughs> all these interesting things um, some of the great jazz musicians had were self-taught a bit like Thelonious Monk and things like that but most of them had, had learned through the classics Chick was obviously aware of that, and a lot of them go back to it, like Keith Jarrett, he went back yes, and he played yes. the well-tempered clavier, didn't yes. he? He composed a saxophone concerto, and Richard Rodney Bennett, he was another one who had a sort of double career as jazz pianist, right, and yeah, yeah. as well as all this serious classical stuff. So, yeah. And I think it must have been nice for Chick to see, within his own lifetime, how much he had influenced so many musicians, a lot of jazz musicians, tragically died when they were very young. I mean, Bill Evans was 51 when he died. His legacy has just gone on and on and on. And now I would think he'd be really, you know, delighted to 
to see how much people are still listening to his music and influenced by him. Yeah. And Chick could see that within his lifestyle because he would do master classes, he would do workshops, people would write to him, you know, homages, play his own music. It's wonderful. It's been so great talking to you. Is there anything that you would like to say or anything else that I should mention before we finish? Well, if you want, we can have a quick walk around the club. Ooh, a little walking tour, yeah. I can show, you, tour, show yeah. you a couple of things. So this is the Upside Bar. Right. And this, in, this was uh, originally the discotheque okay. in the 1960s. Okay. Um, when they first moved to this premises in 1965, this was another... It was a part of the club, but it was the discotheque and it was the thing to sort of keep the young happy. It was a completely different setup. The bar was, was over there. Was it more of a rock and roll Yeah, and they had records yeah. and they had a piano here and all that sort of stuff. Anyway, we go down here. <laughs> yeah, I came across this and wall of fame. I mean. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And uh, there's some lovely, you know, there's lovely photos. There's Art Blakey and yeah. Dexter Gordon back on the stairs there. Um, there's Tony Bennett, this is Sally Green, the oh, owner amazing. of Ronnie's, and uh, Elvin Jones was John Coltrane's oh, drummer, um, that's John Dankworth. Amazing, yeah. I played with Elvin Jones down here once because wow. his pianist didn't turn up, but that's another long story. Buddy Rich, he was very obviously... Of course, yeah. Um, and what's great about YouTube is that there's some great films of these guys. Okay, and so this um, is now the main room at Ronnie's. Yeah. And it's changed its structure since the 1960s the bars moved to the back of the room okay. what hasn't changed is in the middle of the bar you can't really see it but you see there's that wooden case there and inside it there's a magnum of champagne yes yeah. that was actually given to ronnie scott and pete king for gang protection because they were threatened <laughs> by the craze the craze wanted to overtake so okay. the local sort of soho gangster type chap because well, he wasn't really a gangster but he was the protector of the street um, took over and uh, he said, keep that bottle of champagne here. And that was in 1965. So that hasn't been, uh, that hasn't been touched since. Yeah. So we'll walk on to the stage and... Uh, Ooh. <laughs> Lovely Yamaha. Yeah, this is the Yamaha S, um, S CFX. It's the handmade sort of version of it, um, but it's fine. <laughs> As you see, it works. This is a the hole in the back of the stage that when we have bands that don't require a piano, we literally wheel the piano back there. Oh, okay. Um, and so here we are on the very stage mm -hmm. at Ronnie's where Miles Davis, Ella Fitzgerald, <laughs> Jimi Hendrix, Prince, oh Oscar goodness. Peterson, Bill Evans, anybody it. who's photographed is in this room. And of course, Ronnie Scott, which we mustn't forget because he was such a great saxophone player. Um, and uh, this what? is the very stage. So it's actually quite small, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, you, you could. I imagine you here. can probably, when you stand here on the stage, you can probably see the whites of people's eyes, can't you? And you can, except it's very dark. Of course, yeah. Well, at the front, at least. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. So and there we go. The mm -hmm. bar used to be over there, and there used to be this amazing lean-in shelf that went all the way around for the students to. Now it's a slightly changed. Um, but there we go. Wow. Oh my days. We can walk around this. Yeah, place definitely. Look at a few of the pictures. There's yeah. Ben Webster and Courtney Pine, Chet yeah. Baker, uh, Oscar Peterson, Dr. John. Yeah. He always used to have to bring his voodoo stick when he came and played. Yeah. Are these Kenny Garrett. dining seats? Or yeah. They? Any, you can, wherever you sit, you, yeah. you can dine. Most people, these are the sort of the, this area here is the sort of the priority seats. 
because um, they get to the front of the stage. Yeah. But yeah, um, this this was the seat where Ronnie always used to sit in this corner here. Yeah. Which now Sally Green and the other owner, Michael Watt, he, that's his where he tends to sit. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody has their favourites. Um, and then yeah, and all the musicians obviously there's Ronnie. Yeah. And uh, some of the characters we've had over the years. Some, there's some nice stories of famous musicians falling asleep here and then the place getting locked okay. whilst they're still here. I won't mention any names. Uh, of course. There's been times when certain people have been seen banging on the door at 7 o'clock in the morning because they've woken up after a night of fun. Yeah. There's Ella Fitzgerald. Oh, wow. She appeared here quite a few times and um, also filmed here. Nina Simone, she's yeah. on another wall, but she was a real legend. Of course. And uh, did lots of films here. Very vulnerable and beautiful scene. Oh, imagine. Um, there's Ella again. And then <laughs> behind the main bar is the dispense bar where all the drinks get made as well. Because oh, as yeah. you can imagine, suddenly 220 people want a vodka martini. Yeah. And then downstairs is the kitchens, and there used to be another bar down there. Oh, this is an interesting photograph. I'll show it to you quickly. Go for it. Um, and that's now a dressing room. This photograph of a car is a Formula 3 um, racing car from the early 70s, because Ronnie yeah. and Pete had a, a racing team. So you can see the Ronnie Scott's club, and then the drivers were Ronnie Scott and Pete King, his business partner. Yeah. So they, used to, they were motor racing was a bit of fun for them. Yeah. Oh, some jazz flute there. There's some jazz, and absolutely. That's John Sermon. Yeah. By the looks of it. Um, That's me looking a bit younger. <laughs> There's Al Giro. Yeah. I'll quickly take you to the back bit because this is the bit where nobody gets to see. Ooh. So upstairs is the recording studio where they do all the web streaming. Ah, oh, yes. And then here is one of the dressing rooms. There you wow. Go. <laughs> um, cozy. Yeah, very cozy. And they've got the you know, hanging clothes up and all that. And there's some pictures of the old club. There's Sonny Rollins in the old club. Dizzy Gillespie playing chess. Oh, incredible. Dizzy, Ronnie was a great chess player, so he loved all that. And uh, um, there's Ronnie and the blind Roland Kirk. Bill Evans here. You know, it's just wherever you go, wherever you look, there's some part of history. Can you imagine the conversations that would have gone on in here? I mean... Oh, I know. <laughs> exactly. Probably just as well not to. <laughs> and that's the exactly. old office, um, which is still used as an office. Behind there, there's another room. Yeah. Which we won't bother to go in because it's uh, probably not very tidy. Yeah. But that's when the old days where Pete and Ronnie used to sit and listen to the music and they always had the telly on as well, watching the sports. Nice. The sound <laughs> of course. Down. Yeah. Amazing. So there we go. Thank you so much. Wow. It's a pleasure. That was so epic. Okay, so in the lobby, so in the lobby of Ronnie Scott's, where we are standing now, the these wallpaper are actually enlarged newspaper clippings that used to be on the board in the office yeah. of some of the stuff from the sixties. But there's some quite amazing uh, pictures. There's Stan Getz there. Mm -hmm. These are all the old bands. That was uh, Ronnie's own band. Here's uh, Mark Murphy and Ella Fitzgerald. Behind this ladder is a picture of a. Quincy Jones ah, with Ronnie Scott because okay. Ronnie Scott was in Quincy Jones' Paris band in yeah. 1965, so they knew each other pretty well. Sonny Rollins, yeah. yeah. So it's nice because all these were going to be thrown away, wow. and they decided to enlarge them and uh, um, make it, you know, make it part of the, f the feature of the club. Yeah. There we go.